Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson, a graduate of Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge. The historian Andrew Roberts is a professor at King's College London, a lecturer at the New York Historical Society, and the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is the author of more than a dozen major works of history, including Masters and Commanders, How Four Titans Won the War in the West, 1941 to 1945, Napoleon, A Life, and The Holy Fox, a biography of Lord Halifax, Andrew Roberts' new volume, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Andrew Roberts, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back on the show, Peter. The hurdle question, the first question, the, the mandatory first question. Before you began work on this book, hundreds, literally hundreds of Churchill biographies were already in existence. You have pulled it off. This book is getting rave reviews. But before you began work, what on earth were you thinking? What did you see that enabled you, that permitted you to think you could, there was an opportunity for something fresh? Well, you're quite right. There are, in fact, 1,009 biographies. You've counted them. There. I've counted them, of course. And um, this, so this is the 1,010th. Um, but actually, what I realized uh, four years ago when I started to, uh, to write this book was that in the, um, in the previous six years or so, so for the last decade from right. now, right. there has been an avalanche of new sources about Winston Churchill, which one wasn't really expecting. Um, the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And, um, and he kept good diaries? Very good diaries. Did he? Every, uh, he had lunch every Tuesday of the Second World War with Winston Churchill, who trusted him with everything, the nuclear secrets, the uh, ultra decrypts and so on. And, um, and the King wrote down everything Churchill said. So we've got a fantastic cornucopia of new stuff, his hopes and fears and his aperçu and his jokes, every Tuesday of the Second World War. Um, I was also very fortunate that since the last major biography of Churchill, no fewer than 41 sets of papers have been deposited at Churchill archives in Churchill College, Cambridge. And so I used all of them. Um, the diaries of Ivan Maisky, the Russian ambassador, 1932 to 43, are available now, uh, which they weren't three or four years ago. Um, the uh, the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet, um, actually, which I discovered uh, seven years ago, I knew that I would be able to use um, quite heavily in this right. as well. And no one else had, had made extensive and nobody, use of those. Nobody had made any use of those, um, quite extraordinarily. So I, I, there is something on pretty much every page of this book that's never appeared in a Churchill biography before. All right. We'll come in a moment to Churchill in action. Of course we will. But we need to set the stage I reckon, particularly for an American audience with regard to two particulars, and here's the first, Churchill the aristocrat. Walking with destiny, Churchill was the last aristocrat to rule Britain. He possessed the unconquerable self-confidence of his caste background. All right, make an American audience understand what that means. What did it mean to have been born in Blenheim Palace, the grandson of a duke? Well, um, Blenheim Palace, of course, is the greatest of all the British palaces. Even the royals envy um, the Dukes of Marlborough for Blenheim. Uh, and the grandson of a duke, but not just any old duke, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, one of the greatest and grandest people in the country. And therefore, he had what today you would call a sense of entitlement uh, that is totally massive, and he didn't care what people thought of him, which in his life turned out to be an extraordinarily useful asset, because I'm sure we're going to come on to the yes. 1930s later, but the attacks that were made on him throughout his life, really, you needed to have a rhinocerine hide. And the reason that he did have that was partly because of his age and class and background. Um, he, he really didn't sort of mind what other people thought of him, because he was so grand. Mm, mm. So to have been born an aristocrat in the second, what would have been the last third of the 19th century. 1874, so yes. To, is to have been born into a world of total, utter self-confidence. That's right. But also, of course, a, a world where your privilege um, imbued you with a responsibility to give back. All right. Uh, and here's the second vital piece of the background that I think takes a little bit of explaining for an American audience, the British Empire. Again, walking with destiny, Andrew. And here I'm quoting from a 1941 entry with someone you just named, the diary of Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London. Quote, 
whom he saw, as far as I can tell, you make it out that he saw Ivan Maisky almost as much as he saw the king. It was it was very close. It, ha it, it absolutely had to be, right. especially after the R Russian, um, the invasion of Russia by Germany. Right. So here's Ivan Maisky. Churchill has told me more than once over the years, and I have no grounds to disbelieve him. Shrewd old communist there. <laughs> is it true or not? That the British Empire is his alpha and omega, close quote. Now today, even in Britain, speaking well of the empire is just a non-starter. So how are Americans to understand this man who had, who, who, well, who's Alpha and Omega, whose lodestar was the defense of the empire? Because the empire that he um, wanted to defend was not some um, evil, sinister, imperialist construct that um, 1960s Marxist professors talk about. It was, in fact, a paternalist concept, something that for 90% of the history of the empire, for 90% of the native peoples of the empire, was a good thing. And Winston Churchill saw that himself up in the northwest frontier where he was protecting the empire from the Pathans and the Afridi and the Talib um, tribes. He saw an empire which had given so much to the people of India um, that it was an entirely different concept from the kind of thing that we're taught in our schools uh, today about the empire. It was somewhere that had brought internal peace for the longest period of time. It had doubled the life expectancy. It had brought the amount of land under cultivation, um, multiplied it by eight times. It had given uh, a Westminster-style uh, politics, which of course it still has this day. Mm -hmm. It has the English language that is uh, invaluable for um, India as the first world language. It abolished evil um, and uh, sinister things like the sati, the throwing of widows onto funeral pyres, uh, which probably would now count as uh, unacceptable interference in uh, local culture. Yes, but um, yes, that definitely yes. was, was one of the things that we did get rid of. And tuggy, we created um, railways and universities and entire new industries. And um, to, to Churchill, uh, that seemed to be a, a good thing and something worth defending all his life, which is what he did. All right. Uh, walking with destiny one more time. Churchill's supposed lack of judgment, and we'll come to that again and again and again, was hung about his neck throughout his career with good reason. Yet when it came to all three of the mortal threats posed to Western civilization by the Prussian militarists in 1914, the Nazis in the 1930s and 1940s, and Soviet communism after the Second World War, Churchill's judgment stood far above that of the people who sneered at his, close quote. The Prussian militarists. What did Churchill get right concerning what he called the world, well, his history of the First World War was called the world crisis. What, give us what he got right, when he saw it, how it is that he got something right that others got wrong? He got right the fact that um, Germany wanted to hegemonize Europe and, uh, and would stop at nothing to do that and would, uh, in this case, of course, in 1914, um, create a crisis out of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, in order to uh, unleash a, a global war. Uh, he also, of course, got the Nazis right. We'll be getting onto that in yes. a second. And, uh, and also the Soviets very, very early on after the Second World War. And yet, because he had got lots of things wrong, such as women's suffrage and the gold standard and the abdication crisis and the uh, Gallipoli campaign, uh, he wasn't trusted with the really big things that he got wonderfully right. So let's, let's come to Gallipoli, Gallipoli then. Um, very largely at Churchill's insistence, the, the First World War incident, the Allies decide they can cripple the Ottomans, an empire, uh, an ally of the Germans, by gaining control of the Dardanelles, and they invade Turkey at Gallipoli, believing they can overwhelm light Turkish defenses. And the Turkish defenses turned out not to be so light, and the Allies got pinned down. What happened, and how much was Churchill's fault? Well, you've got it, you've got it uh, right in a nutshell. It was a brilliant... I'm summarizing you, Anne. <laughs> it was a genius concept. Uh, if you could get the Royal Navy through the Straits, uh, the Dardanelles Straits, and moor it off Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, you could force the Ottoman Empire out of the Central Powers. It would have been one of the great coups of the 
Great War. Right. But on the 18th of March 1915, uh, the Allies lost six ships uh, destroyed uh, in that uh, attempt. And then instead of calling the whole thing off, on Churchill's insistence, um, overruling the Admiralty, he then started... He is at this point... First Lord of the Admiralty, so he's the political um, leader of the Royal Navy, but right. he's also easily the most bellicose, um, and uh, and um, he'd already fought on four continents. So so people, he was about the only soldier in the whole of the cabinet. So people listened to him, and he. He'd been under fire, so he felt no need to defer to the military men who were advising him. Precisely, that, right. and also he'd been at some of the most terrible defeats in, uh, like, Spion Cop in the Boer War. So he didn't have an instinctive regard for experts, generals, admirals, and so on. He thought most of them were idiots. And uh, so when he insisted on the um, attack on the Gallipoli Peninsula, um, people went along with him, and that too was a disaster from the 25th of April 1915 onwards. It actually wound up over the next eight months, costing 157,000 killed and wounded. Mm. And it was his doing. It was his doing. And so as a result, people um, were, um, people would shout at him, what about the Dardanelles, right the way into the 1930s, um, because uh, he was the primary um, uh, person pushing for this. However, first of all, of course, the Prime Minister and Cabinet went along with it. He, right. they wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't. And he learnt from it. The great thing about many, one of the many great things about Winston Churchill is that, yes, he made these terrible errors. He told his wife, Clementine, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. But he also had this redemptive side to him, which meant that he learned from them. And the thing that he learned from the Dardanelles was never once in the Second World War did he overrule the chiefs of staff when all three of them agreed on a, on a um, plan of action. I see. All right, now we come to the Nazis. Of course we do. Walking with Destiny, the important point about Churchill in 1940 is not that he stopped a German invasion that year. Interesting, now you overturn all the 1,009 books that preceded this one. The important point is not that he stopped a German invasion then that year, but that he stopped the British government from making peace. Explain that. Well, um, we know, uh, and indeed he knew from the uh, decrypts, that, um, the Enigma decrypts, that after the defeat of, um, in the Battle of Britain, by the, the Luftwaffe's defeat, um, that Hitler had from uh, mid-September onwards decided not to invade Britain. He quite rightly didn't tell the British people this because he needed the nation to be united mm -hmm. um, and working hard and, and concentrating. Uh, on victory. And um, what he had done, though, back in the May of 1940, was prevented Lord Halifax and various other elements in the British... Halifax's position the is... ...the Foreign Secretary, um, and um, uh, various other elements in the uh, Foreign Office uh, from attempting to make a peace deal with Adolf Hitler via Mussolini. Had that happened, um, Hitler would have been able to have, um, the following summer or spring, to have flung the entirety of his forces against Russia. As it was, he only used 50 to 70 percent of the Luftwaffe. Had he um, had the whole of the Luftwaffe being able to do that, rather than keeping a lot of it back in order to protect against our bombing of German cities, um, when one thinks he all, he'd he subjected Leningrad to a grueling thousand-day siege. He got to the subway stations of Moscow. He took Stalingrad. Uh, had he had the whole um, of his air force, he could have got further. He might have pushed the Russians beyond the Urals, and that would have been utterly disastrous for, um, for, for Britain in the long run. Mm. So Churchill's resolve at this point forces the Germans always to be fighting a two-front war. Exactly. Um, Again, I'm going to quote from Walking with Destiny. Halifax, Foreign Secretary. Halifax was certainly not the semi-traitor he has sometimes been depicted as being. He simply could not see how Britain could possibly win once driven off the continent, as of course they were, they have to retreat at Dunkirk. When France was about to fall, the Soviet Union was a German ally, Italy was about to become another German ally, and the United States was in no mood to declare war on Germany. Halifax was merely a logical rationalist, close quote. You make such a strong case for Halifax in that one paragraph that, 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 that all reverberates through the rest of the book. You keep thinking, Churchill was a little bit mad. Yes, well, he, no, he was irrational um, and romantic, and he was not the, the sort of dry-as-dust Victorian aristocrat, the uh, 
um, the man with the stiff upper lip. He, he actually was a passionate, romantic figure, a, a, driven by his emotions. And um, in, in the Second World War, over 50 times, he burst into tears, uh, in the, sometimes in the House of Commons. Must have been tremendously off-putting for the Prime Minister to burst into tears, and yet people knew that that was an aspect of Churchill. And so he was not about to make peace with Hitler. Instead, he outmaneuvered Lord Halifax all the way through those five days. So can, one of the things that's so striking about Churchill is he's working constantly. The memorandum, this is one of the things that the, you quote, he, he has a detailed knowledge of the military situation at every single moment. And one of the things that's so, that I, enables him to bring the country with him is that he's reporting on the military situation in the House. All right. And yet for all that, he's not calculating in the end. No, he's driven, as I say, by his emotions. But, uh, of course, he is, when it comes to the um, Defence Committee of the War Cabinet, when he uh, talks to them, to the generals in particular, and the staff, he does go into the granular detail of where every battalion is. Right. Um, but when it comes to the politics, uh, when people want to try and make peace with Hitler, however bad the situation got, he managed to, um, to retain a wonderful sense of humour. He's constantly making jokes throughout May and June 1940. I think that comes from his sense of destiny, which of course yes. I refer to in the subtitle, his own personal sense of destiny, which is an incredibly powerful aspect to Churchill. Churchill refused to be cowed by the almost complete unanimity of the British establishment in appeasing Hitler and the Nazis. So, you make this point in detail. Churchill is not just standing up to Hitler, but against his party, his friends, his class, for that matter, he's standing up to the known sympathies of the king himself. Where did this come from? He's an aristocrat, yes, but that, but, but no, 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 his, his whole class was, it was wanted to, set, to, Absolutely. to, I think to settle comes, with Hitler. It comes from three things that you don't get um, very much with the rest of his class and age and background. Um, the first was his philo-Semitism. He liked Jews, he got on with them, he got on holiday with them, his father liked Jews, he thought that they gave the ethics of world civilization. He was um, philo-Semitic, he'd been a Zionist, of course, at the time of the Balfour Declaration, and so, um, so he had an early warning system when it came to Hitler and the Nazis that was not vouchsafed to people, um, many of them anti-Semitic, who right. were sitting on the benches with him. That's the first thing. Second thing was he was an historian and he was able to place um, the threat to hegemonize Europe made by Hitler into the long panoply of British history. So you go from Philip II and the Armada to Louis XIV, who of course was uh, stopped in the Spanish War, the War of Spanish Succession by his own great ancestor, John Marlborough. John Marlborough, precisely. And, um, then Napoleon, and then the Kaiser, who he, of course, had also fought in the trenches um, after the Gallipoli disaster. He went, he was battalion commander, in, and he actually went into no man's land no fewer than 30 times in that conflict. Uh, got so close to the German trenches he could hear them speaking on these, uh, on these uh, expeditions out there. And then Adolf Hitler, so he could see it in the broad continuum of, uh, mm -hmm. of British politics. And then the third thing is that he had come up against fanaticism, um, up close and personal against fanaticism in his life when he was fighting in the Sudan, when he was fighting on the Northwest frontier. In this case, Islamic um, religious yes. fanaticism, but um, but he could see in that the same cadences and contours and echoes as the Nazis in the um, in the 1930s, uh, in a way that the other prime ministers of the 1930s, people like Ramsay MacDonald and Neville Chamberlain and Stanley Baldwin, for example, just simply had never seen that kind of fanaticism in their lives and therefore didn't see it in the Nazis either. Got it. Um, Churchill was indispensable during the Second World War because he, well, because he prevented... Halifax were making peace, but also because he exuded a confidence in victory, I'm quoting you again, Andrew, that no other senior figure did and was able to provide something that Neville Chamberlain could not, hope. And this brings us to the speeches, which to this day, you listen to these speeches, they're available on YouTube, 70, more than three quarters of a century after he delivered them, in California instead of London, it's still very difficult to avoid a certain emotional pull. Certain emotion. My, my, my back tingles and tears just come unbidden to my eyes pretty much into the third sentence of yes. some of the great speeches. Yes. Of, of so 
So where, again, you, we, we to, uh, I think particularly to Americans, in the Second World War, he, this figure simply emerges, but he's fully formed as we see him. Precisely. Where did this come from? And he knew the that. The ear, the cadences, the, the sense of showmanship, but at the same, this uh, amazing ability to combine the showmanship, the memorable phrase, with deep substance. Well, you're right. And of course, he wrote in the last um, paragraph of the first uh, volume of his war memoirs, um, I felt, and, and he was talking about the day he became prime minister, mm -hmm. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And when it came to uh, his speeches, it was indeed a preparation. His love of Shakespeare, of course, was highly um, influential on him. The way in which he had mastered the English language, he, uh, as he called it, that noble thing, the English sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, and his important, the importance he put in clarity short words, short sentences, Anglo-Saxon words that could be understood going back a thousand years. Um, these were things that, um, that he used in his, um, in his morale-boosting speeches. But they, fascinatingly, all go back to an article that he wrote back in 1897 when he was a 23-year-old um, soldier and had never given a speech before in his life, and yet he wrote out the five things you need to do to bring over, um, over audiences. And then he followed them and he gave, uh, his actual collection of speeches is 8,000 pages long. So he had given so many, uh, hundreds and hundreds of speeches before the, um, the Second World War broke out. And therefore, it really was a preparation for his hour and his trial. Mm. And I'm also trying to think, when did radio came along when he was already in middle age? Yes. Television yeah. at the very, very end. Yeah. But speech after speech after speech, he's giving to a crowd. Yes. He, there's a human contact. He can see their faces. He can hear them laugh. Yeah. Likewise in the commons. Of course, the commons is a very intimate atmosphere. It's a very You've got small pe place. People yes. facing you on the opposite mm. benches. Yeah. So he's, this years and years of actual training, finding out what works, seeing yes. what, right. Understanding audiences, so noticing the way that certain words will work with, and, with certain audiences. It was absolute second nature to him. So it was easy. He was born with a gigantic talent and worked on it all his life. Actually, funny enough, he didn't think he was born with it. He, oh, was that so? Well, he had a slight uh, sibilant S, yes. of course, and he had to work hard to get rid of that. Um, and he also um, didn't believe that he could, as he said, um, fly on the unpinioned wing. He always needed notes, little six by four cards. So he, mm -hmm. he wrote out what he called in psalm form um, what he was going to say. And even uh, in, the, in the easiest speeches, just to his local constituency association, for example, he would still have it all written out. Because in 19... And stayed with them, very little ad-libbing? Um, he, he practiced his ad-libbing. Ah. <laughs> yes. Got it. <laughs> uh, now we come to that question of judgment again. Um, I've mentioned this to you before. I, I was told a story by a man who's now died, but, but he lived deep into his 90s, and I was told this story when he was in his 90s, a man called George Elsie, who was in the map room of the White House. He was a lieutenant. He was just there for cables to arrive and so forth to keep FDR informed. This is during Churchill's first or second visit to the White House. There's a, and at 11 o'clock at night, the doors open, and the president, FDR, is wheeled in, and Churchill comes in, and George Marshall, chief of the army, chief of staff of the army, United States Army, and a couple of British generals, and they start fighting back and forth, referring to the maps on the table over the Churchill's insistence on a soft underbelly approach. You'll tell us in a moment what that meant. And as this man remembered it all these years later, what was striking to him, first of all, FDR just sat on the side smoking cigarettes and listening. It was Churchill and George Marshall, the Prime Minister of Britain and the top professional American soldier. And Churchill kept emphasizing the aggressive opportunities. If we do this, we can get them here. We can cut them off here. We can. And Marshall kept emphasizing the logistical realities. Supply lines will be too long, no ports for resupply, shipping lanes too exposed. Um, and, and I'm almost sure that Albert Wedemeyer, who was a chief of the planning staff, was in the room that evening as well. In any event, Wedemeyer, to his dying day, insisted that Churchill wasted hundreds of hours of, of, of time of the American general staff, forcing them to contend with his bad judgment. Wedemar was. How does all this come out? Wedemar was an agoraphobe. Um, he was, uh, in many ways, a great. Uh, uh 
uh, staff officer, but he just didn't like the British, and he always thought that we were trying to attack in the Mediterranean in order to save our empire rather than um, rather than beat the Germans, um, which is wrong. But nonetheless, um, this I think you're referring to June 1942. That's the one that makes sense because most of it right. most of it was in the White House, and George Marshall was, played an extremely important uh, part of it. And um, yes, well, what you have there in a microcosm in uh, in uh, Mr. Ells's uh, uh, recollections is precisely what you needed, really. The politician who was driving forward and had big ideas and big hopes and dreams. And the um, chief of staff of the US Army, fully backed up in this case also by uh, Field Marshal Lord uh, Allenbrook, who was the chief of the Imperial General Staff in Britain and also the chairman of the British Chiefs of Staff. And they held him back and, and, and put the sensible questions about, as you say, logistics and so on. But what you needed was the creative tension between these two um, political masters of him and uh, FDR and, um, and military commanders to uh, create, from the creative tension, a strategy which was the war-winning one, where we captured a quarter of a million Axis troops in North Africa, then went over into Sicily and mainland Italy, and the day after Rome fell, we crossed the uh, channel and delivered that great punching uh, blow on D-Day. And to, a to be able to come together to get that great strategy, you needed a lot of arguments, and boy, did they, uh, did they debate it, you know, of course they did. And, and, um, so what looks, at least to some extent, what looks like bad judgment on Churchill's part, bad tactical judgment, is pushing the generals. Constantly pushing the generals. And sometimes uh, he came up with ideas solely in order, yes, it did take hours to knock them all down. Wedemeyer was right as far as that was concerned. But if they weren't all being tested constantly about the offensive, how important the offensive was, um, then Churchill feared that they wouldn't, um, take the offensive. Right. And so it did require this constant bellicosity from him to ensure that uh, that everybody was on the same page when it came to hitting the Hun as hard as possible, right. as he put it. One other question about his judgment. In this, this case, moral judgment. Um, I have the feeling that this is something that's a uh, question that's, that's been raised in the last decade or 15 years, maybe for the first time, Dresden. Uh, February 5th, 1945, British uh, attack on the uh, capital of Saxony, Dresden. The city is obliterated, a beautiful Baroque city. The uh, 13th of February. Sorry, th thank you. And, and uh, almost 30,000 German civilians are killed. Um, in his history of the Second World War, I checked on this, Churchill passes over Dresden in one sentence. Uh, I almost feel he doesn't really, he doesn't want to go into it. Uh, I can t oh, you're excellent. This is good. You're coiling. All right. <laughs> uh, so, and you quote, here's a memorandum for Churchill to General Ismay, his military aide. This is in March. The bombing run over Dresden takes place in February, as you corrected me, February 13th. By March, questions are being raised by bishops in the Church of England, in the House of Lords, about the morality of what took place in Dresden. And Churchill writes to Ismay, quoted here, the moment has come when the question of bombing German cities simply for the sake of increasing the terror, though under other pretexts, should be reviewed. The destruction of Dresden remains a serious query against the conduct of Allied bombing, close quote. So Churchill's aware of and indeed seems to be condoning the intentional targeting of civilians to increase the terror. And he actually says uh, in that memo, elsewhere in that memo, are we beasts? He asks this question. Uh, he put he, that in writing. He put that in writing. He didn't uh, believe that we were uh, beasts, by the way, but he, he thought it worth asking. And um, the problem with Dresden, of course, was that he himself was at Yalta at the time. So it was signed off by Clement Attlee, his deputy prime minister. It was demanded by the Russians because it was a railway nodal point between Dresden the, is. Dresden is, uh, between the east and the west. And what the Germans were doing were taking troops away from the west to, uh, to fight in the east. And the Russians wanted this stopped. And, and uh, so the city was obliterated. Something, I think the numbers now are considered by a group of a uh, committee of German uh, historians closer to 25,000 than to 30. And uh, Goebbels, of course, claim, claimed it was 100,000. And I think the, uh, the former historian David Irving has also come up with some six-figure number. It's very important that we don't go down that route. It isn't anything like that number, but it's still a huge number of people, 25,000. Yes. Um, 
there were optics um, factories there that created the um, uh, the night um, the, um, the sights the sights for yes. the rifles. They, they there were um, there were things that um, uh, we didn't know about. One of them was that the Gauleiter, the local Gauleiter, created a uh, system of um, of underground bunkers for himself, his family, and his immediate staff, and not for the people of Dresden. And so um, that also was when once the uh, fireball had started, that also was a result uh, did result in much higher casualties than uh, were expected. But the fact is, yes, we had a. Um, uh, both the RAF and the US AAF had a policy of um, of smashing German cities night after night in order to shorten the war as quickly as possible. And it led to the deaths of some half a million Germans. But what it also did is to completely flatten off the rate of increase of war production uh, material by about the August of 1943. Could it have um, been ended sooner, perhaps if you have the certainty of hindsight? But the trouble is we didn't know, um, we know today, but we don't don't know when the Second World War was going to end. There was lots of talk of the German redoubts of secret uh, weapons that were being worked on. Um, the uh, we didn't have in those days. They just simply didn't know when it was going to end, and they needed to bring it as, uh, to an end as soon as possible. And so, yes, the bishops in the Church of England and various other conscientious objectors and others uh, and people on the uh, on the left of politics as well, you get a bit of this uh, attacking the policy in the House of Lords. But overall, um, I think the British people were 100% behind uh, the, um, uh, the policy. And I think it can be justified simply on the, uh, on the moral uh, stance of the just war. Right. All right, we come now, you, uh, the, the Prussian militarists, the second big threat, of course, is the Nazis. Uh, by the way, I just apologize. This is a thousand pages. And as the New York Times, whatever it was, New York Times or well, somebody, everybody calls it gripping. And here we are reducing an ox to the size of a bullion cube. By, there's just, there's just, there's nothing, there's nothing else to, that can be done. A little, un, a little under a thousand pages, but very little. A little under a thousand pages. All right. Um, the third is the the Soviet threat after the end of the uh, Second World War. Um, Churchill in the House of Commons on February twenty-seven. Two quotations here. This takes a little bit to set up, but I'll ask you about each quotation. Churchill in the House of Commons on February 27th, 1945, during the debate on the Yalta Agreement. He's returned from the meeting with Roosevelt and Stalin, and they've sorted out fundamentals of how to deal with Europe after the war has ended. And he goes back to the House, and there's a debate. And Churchill says, quote, the impression I brought back from the Crimea is that Marshal Stalin and the Soviet leaders wish to live in honorable friendship and equality with the Western democracies. I feel also that their word is their bond. I know of no government which stands to its obligations more solidly than the Russian Soviet government. I decline absolutely to embark here on a discussion about Russian good faith." Close quote. And that is rubbish from beginning to end. He already knew that the Soviets were lying about Katyn and on and on and on. And the following day, in my personal view, in some sense to their honor, 25 MPs vote against the Yalta Agreement, including that decent man and future Prime Minister Alec Douglas Hume. So explain that. What is he up to? He knows he's talking nonsense, doesn't uh, he? He, um, he did actually privately come back with um, the, the uh, War Cabinet um, verbatim accounts. Uh, has him say the same thing. I do feel that we can trust uh, Marshal Stalin uh, over the independence and the integrity of Poland. And, and, right. I, and the point is that he was lied to by, uh, by Stalin. Part of the, I'm suspecting that the next quote you're going to come up with is the Iron Curtain. You know exactly. Exactly where I'm going. <laughs> but um, so you over speak the, as if you'd written the book on this. <laughs> over the next 53 weeks, between that speech, this is the and question: What happened? Go ahead. A lot, a lot happened, especially in Poland, where, of course, the Russians had one million um, Red Army boots on the ground, and the West had no hope of uh, of interfering there. And so w w the uh, the scales fell from Churchill's eyes very quickly after this uh, after the. Um, 
uh, vote was passed by a huge majority. Um, arrests of um, Polish um, uh, government officials and soldiers, um, various things that he was that uh, he was also doing in stopping democratic elections, not just in Poland but all over Eastern Europe. Uh, the cl the obvious truth, at least obvious to to him, to him, but not to uh, a lot of other people in the West, because when he did make the Iron Curtain speech, he was given just as much obloquy uh, and had um, just as much attacks uh, on him in Parliament and Congress and the press and so on, as ever he had in the pre-war period. I, I want to come to the Iron Curtain speech again in a moment, but before we do that, so I read, as, as I just said, I read that quotation, mm. his defense of Russia in the Yalta debate and say it's rubbish. I don't agree with but you. But you don't agree with me. No, I don't. And that's an important point that, yeah. because it also, I'm baffled when I look at the cables that FDR is it naive? This is, for Americans, this is the big question the last 18 months of FDR's life. Is it total naivete, or was the alliance, this common experience of fighting Hitler, did it cause Churchill and FDR to revise their views of Stalin? And also, what was the alternative? You know, if you had an, an army um, that was in control of, of um, uh, Eastern Europe, or, or you know, in any way could liberate uh, Poland, then there might have been a point of not believing Stalin's, um, Stalin's lies at Yalta. But if you, if you practically can't do anything, isn't it better to um, make Stalin believe at least that you do um, believe him? Uh, okay, okay. You, actually, now you're making a distinction. I, uh, you're drawing me in now. Um, <laughs> it's your share. Because the, because the alternative would be to say, all right, the Red Army is in Eastern Europe. They've got it. The war is over. The British Empire is exhausted. The United States, it, it, there's no political will to attack the Soviet Union. To con it's over. It's done. They've got it. On the other hand, we know that the common cause here, once Hitler is defeated, Stalin is a communist. He hasn't changed anything. They, the Soviet Union remains officially committed to worldwide communist revolution. They will then become our enemy. The alternative would have been to be realistic about it all the way through. But, but Churchill was the first person to get realistic yes, about he was. it. Yes. And, um, and when there was a practical alternative, and of course, by uh, the time of um, the Iron Curtain speech, um, which is March 5, 1946. Exactly. Um, in Fulton, Missouri. Just one year, a year and a week after he delivers that the ringing defense of the Soviet Union. Pre precisely. Um, by that time, the scales had fallen entirely from his eyes. And there was another huge factor which gave the West an enormous advantage over the Soviet Union, which wasn't there back in Yalta, which, of course, were the nuclear bombs yes. that had been dropped in August uh, 1945, yes. and um, which they didn't know that the Russians were were stealing, but the Russians still weren't able to uh, detonate one of their own devices until April 1949. Right, right. And our bomber advantage gave us the effective control into the early 50s, is my understanding. They didn't have a way of delivering the weapons. Precisely. Right. Um, just because it's so wonderful, let me quote this. March 5th, 1946, Fulton, Missouri, Westminster College. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe and what I must call the Soviet sphere under increasing control from Moscow. And the Americans were still so uncertain what to do that when Truman, the, they, he and Churchill traveled by train to Fulton together and Truman took the train back to Washington and by then, as you say, the press was in arms. How could Churchill deliver such a bellicose speech? And Truman gets off the train at Union Station and is asked his view and he answers no comment. That's right, even though he'd read the speech on the way on out the, on, the, way out, on yes. the train on the way out, uh, yes. as is clear from Clark Clif Clifford's account and other people who were on that train. Yes. Um, so, uh, and in fact, um, it, was, it was worse than that, really. The Truman administration um, gave the go-ahead, really, to a lot of, um, of the press to, um, to lambast um, Churchill. And yet, over the next two years, Churchill was proved right by the way in which uh, Stalin, as we mentioned earlier, uh, established his grip and started the Cold War. All right. Um, last questions, although, of course, we could go on for <laughs> hours. Walking with Destiny, at the end of his life, he considered, him, he considered his career a failure. 
for not having defended the British Empire successfully. And I think you, your argument would be that was yet another error in his judgment. Well, we go back to this uh, sense of it being the alpha and omega of his, uh, yes. of his career. Um, he had, uh, as a young man, defended it uh, physically in, uh, in war after war. He had um, proselytized for it. He believed in it. He had, um, he had nearly thrown away his career in the 1930s by opposing self-government for India. He had um, said in 1942 that he had not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And when he then became prime minister again in peacetime in the 1950s, he didn't uh, alienate any of the, uh, didn't give back any of the colonies at all. So he had done his best for the empire, but by the time he was entering his, uh, his last years in the 1960s, um, the empire had been given away, not just India in 1948, but also the African colonies and other Asian colonies. And so he considered, despite having been instrumental in helping win the Second World War, that the thing that mattered most to him, which was the empire, um, having been lost, uh, meant that his career had been a failure. And so as he slipped into senility, he thought of himself, even however much we might think of him as one of the great successful politicians of all time, he thought of himself as having failed. Mm. Uh, a thousand, not quite, as you point out. <laughs> it just it puts off readers terribly. Oh, does it? Uh, no, <laughs> readers shouldn't be put off by this. They should not be put off by this. If you're put off by this object, get it, download it to Kindle or, or listen to it on an audiobook if you're on the treadmill. Don't be put off. But this not quite 1,000 pages implies the mastery of tens of thousands of pages of documents. How many research assistants? Never. Never have I used that a single... Un that is just unbelievable. No. no You're the studio of Rubens with only Rubens. <laughs> um, having How, said so that, I have, I have got five million words of notes that I've taken. Uh, this is the fifth book that I've written with Churchill in the title or the subtitle. Um, rather like... Uh, Right, and I've written hundreds, literally hundreds of reviews and articles about him over the past 30 years. So if I don't know it by now, I really should, uh, shouldn't be undertaking but, a book I, like but this. But still, your working methods, how do you, how do you, how do you, you read all of these new materials. Yeah. I don't know quite how you got from one place to another. The, the Churchill archives are where? They're in Cambridge. In Cambridge, Cambridge. yes. yes. I'm assuming that the King's Diaries are in Windsor. Yes, they're in the Round Tower at Windsor Castle. And one isn't permitted to take, make photocopies, I no, suppose, at the Round not. Tower. No, you you have to... Actually, if you want to go to the lavatory, um, you have to have somebody escort you to the, to the loo and come back again. Wow. <laughs> they don't let you wander around the Royal Archives, no. So how, <laughs> what are your working methods? Um, well, I, I'm a great believer in getting all the evidence first before you write a word of the book, because what happens if you discover something that then undermines your um, uh, your thesis? So I bring it all uh, together in, uh, in note form, work out in each of the chapters where I want my themes to fit into the overarching uh, narrative. Stick with chronology, of course, because that's how the life was lived and also the way in which we, we look at it. And it's also, I think, impossible to understand uh, it, a life any other way. And then, and, then, and then fit in the themes, which will all be in different files than the chronological files. It's a, it's a pretty uh, straightforward process. It just requires an awful lot of time getting up very early in the morning. <laughs> so you are a very hard worker. Uh, I am when I'm, when I'm uh, writing the book. I wrote that book in actual, the writing of that book took 100 days, um, where I averaged 5,500 words a day. And do you write or rewrite or both? How, how, how? Oh yes, After, once it's done, then, there's, uh, then there was another three weeks in which I slimmed it down massively. You only took three weeks to rewrite and edit? Yeah, but it's, um, luckily I have a, um, uh, you know, I, I can't get writer's block, A, because I'm a historian, and B, because I have a mortgage. All right. Um, this huge output, uh, outpouring of books, all your books are good, Andrew. This is just, I, I, you know, I admire you so much that I'm required to hate you, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, all the time, and, and you're writing on contemporary British politics all the time as well. You're a Brexiteer. You want out of the European Union. You supported the move, the vote, which passed narrowly, and now Britain is hung up and in chaos and so forth. And I would like to quote to you Nicholas Soames, 
who must be a friend of yours, prominent member of parliament and one of Winston Churchill's grandsons, quote, if you were to put Winston Churchill here today, does anyone really believe with all his experience that looking out over a very unstable, fragile, uncertain world, he would think this was a good idea for Britain to cut itself loose from the continent? Andrew Churchill himself implores you to reconsider. No, Churchill doesn't at all. Uh, This is an area where Nicholas and I um, disagree. I think that although, of course, Churchill was one of the founders of the European movement and said, let Europe arise, and uh, he wanted to the Teuton never again to fight Gaul, as he put it, with regard to France and Germany. Um, When it actually comes to it, and he became Prime Minister in uh, April, sorry, October 1951 through to April 1955, so just before the actual Treaty of Rome in 1957 that created the European Community, um, he did nothing at all to bring Britain to, towards that. He, uh, he didn't join the Iron and Steel uh, Confederation. He didn't join the European Army. He put out minutes, many of which are, are uh, or some of which are quoted in this book, um, saying that um, he didn't want to get Britain involved. He very much wanted it to be a success, and uh, he just didn't want us to um, threaten what he saw as our connections with the United States, the special relationship, the uh, Commonwealth, of course, and our ability to do trade deals with every other country in the world, mm. uh, which was, of course, ultimately to, um, uh, to end when we, uh, when we did join the common market. And what about this notion that the Remainers have? This would be, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the, I think it would be the Cameron Osborne ar- argument. This is bad economics, to which some of the Brexiteers, and here I don't want to put words in your mouth, say, no, 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 it's not just a matter of economics. By the way, we disagree with you on economics. We can trade with the rest of the world more easily. But we also, it's about much more than that. It's about sovereignty. It's about our national sense of identity. It's about whether we will rule ourselves or be ruled from Brussels. And they say, ah, that's Edwardian romantic nonsense. I never have any problems explaining this to an American. How would you feel if uh, if a foreign body had the opportunity, had the right to um, to go over the heads of the Supreme Court and over the heads of your Congress and uh, and decide your laws for you? Um, it's something that I don't think any American would put up with for 10 seconds. And so I can I never have any problem explaining why I'm a Brexiteer. All right. Now explain to me why. Highly intelligent people such as David Cameron and Nicholas Soames and George Osborne would be Remainers. Um, because they obviously aren't, don't get so hot under the collar about the uh, the European Court of Justice and uh, the um, and the way in which Brussels, uh, in my view, impinges on uh, British sovereignty. All right. Um, Churchill again. We began the program by by talking about what a thorough aristocrat he was, and how deeply committed he was to the British Empire. The aristocratic order is no more. There are titled people tottering around, desperate to keep keep their big houses in operation. Blenheim is now a working museum. You get to tour it for 15 quid. The House of Lords is filled with, with opportunists who've been given life peerages. It's over, it's just over. That's irrelevant now. The British Empire is gone, and not only gone, but unfashionable to say a good word on behalf of it, even in Britain. What relevance? It's a wonderful story. Everybody agrees it's a wonderful story, and we have proof of that because every single review says gripping, best one-volume biography ever, so forth. But what relevance does he have for us today? He has more relevance uh, today probably than ever before. He is a figure who transcends all of the things you just mentioned, like the British Empire and the aristocracy, because his story is one of extraordinary extraordinary physical courage and then allied to moral courage. He didn't change his uh, stance when he was being attacked and shouted down in the House of Commons and nearly deselected from his seat by the Conservative Party and ridiculed and lampooned in the press and so on. He carried on making the same truth, telling the same truths about Hitler and the Nazis in the 1930s, for example, and many other examples. He was somebody who therefore combined physical and moral courage. He had extraordinary foresight, extraordinary to be able, as we mentioned earlier, 
within a year of Yalta to be able to warn the, uh, sorry, 13 months of Yalta, to be able to warn the world about the true nature of Stalin and Soviet communism. To have seen it, not to have cared what people said, and to have told the truth. That is something, that's a value in politics that isn't going to have a sell-by date. Mm. He also had, as well as this foresight, this extraordinary eloquence that we were discuss discussing earlier. That, again, I don't think... Um, uh, is something that we um, have terribly much of today in our politics. And sometimes, sometimes I, I really do think that we need it. And more politicians should read the five um, things in the scaffolding of rhetoric, examples of how to, uh, how to bring over a, um, an audience. And I think finally, this whole um, idea of a, um, of, a, of a figure who was... Um, who didn't just have the foresight, but also was able to learn from his mistakes. He made lots of mistakes, many blunders, but he learned from each of them in a different way, learned from every single one of them. And that too is a, a true quality in a politician that I don't think um, uh, is going to um, ever be out of fashion in any time in our lifetimes. Mm. Last question, Andrew. Claire Booth Luce used to say that in the end, and again, I, 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 I'm slightly frightened to put this question. He, he had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Claire. Yes, Bruce yes, Luce. they did. They did. Yes. Right. Uh, <laughs> I knew her a bit in her final years. Did you was, really? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, she lived in Washington. She got bored wow. in Hawaii yeah. and moved back to Washington. Formidable lady. Oh, imagine. was she ever? Yeah. Yes, she was. Yeah. Um, she used to like to say that in the end, history is only going to have time for one sentence for every great man. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Can you reduce him? What is the one sentence that the your great-great-grandchildren will need to cling to about Winston Churchill? Oh, gosh, that's such a difficult question because, of course, there are so many, so many sentences. Um, if I was to, to come up with one, I would say uh, the thing that he told the Harrow schoolboys um, in, uh, in his Indian summer premiership in, uh, in the 1950s where he said, never give in, never, never, never give in. And, uh, and that's, thank God, what he said in 1940. And it's the reason I'm not speaking German today. And it's the reason that uh, so much of the world um, is still democratic. Never give in. Andrew Roberts, the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the author of the brilliant new biography, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. A I pleasure. really enjoyed it. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thanks for joining us. Surely in this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense.